Hey, thanks, Joe. So we're going to dive right in. Uh, if you guys have a Bible, uh, we're going to be going through uh, Luke 14. So if you guys want to pull that up. Um, so we've been talking about the, the series is called Adopted. And uh, one of the things that we have been going over is um, sort of what it means to radiate adoption out from you and what it means to adopt others. Um, and, you know, we mean it in the literal sense as in adopting a person. Um, but what we're going to do is dive into this a little bit uh, biblically and figure out what it means to adopt somebody. Um, theologically, I guess. Now, I got to warn you, I'm not a theologian. I don't have enough letters after my name to know this stuff. So if any of you are well-versed in theology and you want to correct me afterwards, please do so. I am more than happy to accept constructive criticism on this. I have uh, uh, been working on this all week, and I actually finished this up yesterday because I was trying to figure out how to piece it all together. Um, so it starts off, I'm just warning you now, I start off in a direction, and then I go off on a completely different tangent at the end. So I'm forewarning you, if you're trying to take notes, I really am sorry, because it's going to go all over the place. <laughs> um, so I always bring my wife into this, and she's here. Hi. Um, we're raising three tiny humans. Um, so any of you guys who have had kids, uh, I feel like I'm an authority, and, and many of you will agree, um, that one of the most heated battles that you have with your kids is trying to get them to share. Sharing is not intrinsically um, motivated up here. It, it's very difficult because they, they just want. They, um, the problem with sharing, if you ask them, is that whatever it is that they want, an object or in my house food, um, or, or whatever it is, it, it carries with it a certain worth that exceeds their capacity for generosity, okay? So, um, and I'm telling on, on one of them, but one of my kids um, is, tends to be very, this is mine, until he no longer puts worth on it. And then it's, oh, sure, I'll be generous with it. So we're working on that. But it's not something that comes naturally to some children, right? I mean, and some of us, just in general, have a difficult time sharing. Um, your average child, the world is really big, to a child, I mean, the world's big anyway, but to a child especially, the world's really, is, is huge. And when they have control over something, they tend to just grab it. They just want that. They want that control because the world's big and it's scary and they have no control over anything in the world because they've got all of these big humans telling them that they have to go, they have to go to bed at this time and they have to go eat at this time and, and they have to, yes, you have to go to the bathroom before we leave the car, you know, leave the house to get in the car because then you'll have to go the first five minutes that we're in the car. Even if we're going across town, they still need to go to the bathroom. No, you don't need a, drink and a, a snack and a drink. I'm really sorry. We're going two minutes down the road. You don't need that. It's, they need any kind of control they can get. Well, I really want this snack. So anything that comes along to disrupt that tiny little kernel of control that a kid has, it really makes them upset. I mean, they grow out of this eventually, I've heard. I don't know if that's actually true or not. Um, we're, going on, we're going on almost 10 years, and we're, we're still struggling. So, um, But what do we do as parents, right? Because you can't just let them go Lord of the Flies on you. <laughs> I mean, you, you could. Well, we teach them that sharing is important, and we tell them that. We show them that, especially show them that, because they always look, and they always listen, even when they don't hear you. We teach them the golden rule, you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is, yes, uh, at its most base level, sharing, openness, is, is transactional, right? You, you do 
good on the base level because you want other people to do good to you. Um, and it's not really a bad way to live, right? I mean, if you are going around doing good, expecting other people to do good for you, then that's probably an okay way to live. Um, but teaching them that generosity, giving and receiving freely and with reciprocity um, is important because this is a Christ-like concept, right? He, he gave us himself entirely as a sacrifice, so it's not like there isn't precedent for this, right? Uh, and most of all, we try to teach them uh, that gratitude and grace, those are the engines, the, the moving parts um, of sharing, that, that we are grateful and thankful for the things that were shared with us and aware of the grace inherent in the act of sharing. Uh, something that we've tried to do with our kids recently um, is before bed, we sit down and we talk about the good parts and the bad parts of their day. Um, and it, it doesn't always work out great because typically we do this when they're typically very tired and especially our, our middle son who tends to just kind of waller around like an alligator while we talk. Uh, but our little one, man, he has bought in fully into this and he's the one who's, he talks the most anyway. So he will just share everything. Good part, bad part, this is my good part, this is my bad part, this was my funny part. He invented a new part of this, was his funny part. So he has his funny part, okay? And the idea behind this was that we would want them to talk about this and then take a step further and then we pray before they go to sleep. And we pray for all of the good things that happened, all of the blessings that happened. Uh, and then um, if, and this happens rarely because it's hard to get kids to open up, at least my kids, if there's somebody or something that has been aggrieving them or made them angry, uh, we'll pray for that too. Because we have to understand that, that giving and receiving grace is an act of sharing too. Forgiveness is an act of sharing. So you, you, you try to instill that in, into these little tiny humans and hope that they get it at some point in the near future. Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked about this series as adopted, and there's no greater expression of the concept of adoption than the act of opening up your home to somebody. Uh, not just for a night, not for a week, not for a month, but it's a life a lifetime. You are adopting somebody, bringing them into your home. And not only your door, but your heart as well. It's the expression of the depth of generosity. It's a godly concept. Um, Jesus taught us how to adopt. And he taught it in ways that, that don't always make sense on the surface, but when you look a little bit deeper, which is what we're going to do today, you see that these concepts come through in a lot of things that he said. So if you go to chapter 14, we're going to go to, uh, ver we're actually going to start today at verse 15. But I have before, and we're reading um, the tale of Despero, and I keep hearing, before I tell you this story, I have to tell you this story. So I'm going to tell you this story before I get to the other story. Um, Jesus is telling a parable about a man who's throwing a party, which is prompted by a banquet that Jesus himself is attending. So it's a banquet within a banquet, if you're following along here. Um, so Jesus is sitting there, and he notices that the that people are choosing the best seats at the table, you know, nearest the host. And in verse 8 of this chapter, he says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. A person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Instead, or I'm sorry, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. This is a very, very Christ-like concept. And you see this throughout the scriptures. But he is saying, you know, settle down. You aren't that big a deal, okay? You're a, you're a big deal, but you're not that big a deal here, okay? Um, 
the concept of humility is something that comes up over and over again, especially in this. But, but humility is not for its own sake, and you'll see it as it goes on here. Uh, at verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You've heard this. This is something that, that comes in over and over again. But up until this point um, in this story, there isn't any context for why this is so other than Jesus looking out for your social standing. I mean, that, there, there's no... There's no preamble to this in, in this chapter. Um, but then he says something else. Verse 12, he says to his host, when you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends. Don't invite your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and you'll be repaid. Reciprocity. Keep that word in your brain. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and then you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So he's saying, if you have a party, don't invite your friends. Invite the least of them. Go out and find these people. And then he says specifically, tell, he tells you to invite strangers into your home. How many of you guys would honestly invite a stranger into your home? You don't have to raise your hand, but think about the concept of taking a stranger off the street into your home and feeding them. I mean, I have a problem bringing in stray cats into our home. We have to feed them, although we gave the last one away to my brother. Jesse just brought in a stray cat, too. And that's, that's difficult, even, let alone a human, right? So, have you guys seen the movie Shrek? There's a right, I told you this thing had a bunch of right turns, man. All right, you've seen Shrek, right? All right, so there's a scene where he's like, he says, uh, and I do a really bad Shrek impression, but he says, ogres have, they're like onions. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. He's trying to explain it to, to the donkey. Uh, this parable is like that. It's got a surface point as we're getting into this. Yeah, this is just preamble. I'm really sorry. I told you. Uh, there's a surface point to all of this, but it goes deeper. And this is why this, is, this, this whole story was so cool, and I really enjoyed kind of spending some time with it this week. Um, so Jesus is setting this scene. So he's throw, this man's throwing a banquet. And, but how many of you guys... So, Pause for a second. How many of you guys are going to be throwing a big party over the holidays with a lot of people coming to your house? Right? We, we will probably end up there, right? Not us at your house. I'm talking about we will be, end up there, throwing, although we could end up. We're very social. We'll bring food. It's a lot of freaking work, right? It's, it makes me tired thinking about it. Um, our, our house is for sale, and cleaning our house on a regular basis for showings is miserable, especially with pets, because they have the little fur tumbleweeds that go through your house, right? So every time somebody wants to look at our house, we have to go and clean the house, and I have a lunch break where I can go home, so I get to clean the house on the lunch break. Um, love you. But you want to make your house look good. You want to have your house in order. You want to prepare your house for your guests. So you work hard. You lay the groundwork. You do the cleaning. You do the scrubbing. You do the cooking. You send out the invitations. You want to make your house good. You straighten up. You hide the laundry. You do the dishes. You get the kids to put the toys away for the eighth freaking time. Put them away. And then you got to scrub the toilets and lemon pledge and all that stuff, right? So you've prepared your house. And you're putting in the work and the sweat to make this place that people want to be at, right? You're putting in all of this work to make your house a home. 
Keep that in your head, verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to some tell those who had been invited, come in, everything's ready. Now stop here. This isn't like sending out an invitation on Facebook, okay? When, in these days, you had a, hit, a huge party, what you did was you went out and you looked for RSVPs first. So you sent people out and said, hey, are you coming, are you coming, are you coming, are you coming? And then they, they come back and they say, okay, this is, so you've got 60 people coming to your house. And so you plan on 60 people. So you set out all your tables and your chairs and your food. You coordinate getting all of this stuff in. And then when it's time for the party, you can't call them. So you send somebody out to go get them all, gather them all up. Hey, the food's ready. So he's throwing this banquet, and he goes out and says, okay, the food's set. We're ready to go. Go get all of these people, okay? Even if he hasn't done all of the scrubbing himself, we can divine from this that this is probably a wealthy person who has servants. But if you've planned a wedding recently, you haven't necessarily done every single scrap of everything. So it's tiring. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, so what happens when his guests receive the news the party's about to start? They start making excuses. Verse 18, the first said, I just bought a field and I must go see it. Excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married. I can't come. Who buys a field without looking at it? Why would you buy oxen if you didn't? And how do you? I don't know anything about oxen. How do you try out oxen? Do you? you I guess you just. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. But why would you not at least see what these were? So uh, you know, the point is, the excuses hardly matter. The point is that these people are begging off. They're, ah, I can't do it. I, I got stuff going on. I mean, so the host has no guests. So the servant comes back, and I'm sure the the servant is probably petrified because in these days, this is a great insult to say I'm coming and then you don't show up. I mean, imagine today RSVPing at a, at a large wedding and then not coming, saying, yes, I'm going to be there, and then you just don't show up. Okay, so th this was an insult. The servant came back, verse 21, and said to his master, um, the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go into the streets, go to the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, uh, I did that already. We still have spots at the table. So the host gets really mad. In chapter 23, he says, Go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them all to come in. Just bring in anyone so that my house is full. Verse 24, the kicker, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. He just goes, all right, fine, I did all this work. Just bring in anyone. I invited you, and you didn't come. I've prepared this house. I've invited you, and you didn't come. I'm going to take in the least of these people to take your spot. And those who turned their backs on me do not get this. This isn't that opaque, right? I mean, we've got, you can kind of see where this is going. But we can break this down into four main points. And the, the first point is this. The banquet is ready. And Jesus is extending the invitation. I think in Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is God's emissary. He's putting him in place of the servant in this parable, proclaiming to Israel the banquet's ready, the table's set. The house is open. It's ready to accept anybody who would just come. It's all there for you. What Jesus is saying is, look, heaven is here. 
ready for you. My Father's house is ready. And you've said, yes, I'm going to commit myself to this. But you actually have to show up. You can't say, I'm going to do this and not do it. The house is ready. Second part of this, the guest list is not going to look the way you think it's going to look. The fact is, Jesus understands not everyone will respond to the invitation. We've seen this in our own lives. And sometimes we're not good at responding ourselves every time we're called, are we? I'm guilty. So for context, you need to understand um, that, look, Jesus is saying there are a lot of people who are going to make an excuse, who will say, yes, I'm going to commit myself to this banquet, to this party, and they'll just ignore the invitation altogether, or they'll respond with malice or hatred. And others who were invited but don't want to go will hate you for responding to that invitation. Oh, that's hard. But here's the thing. He's not going to cancel the party just because the guests refuse to attend at all. Because that party's still going to go on no matter what. That invitation will always be open to us. That party will never stop. The invitation will never close. In this parable, Jesus says the man kept sending his servant out to find more and more people to bring to his table. God wants us to come to this table. And he will continue to send invitations to you to come join his table. Even if you refuse, even if you hate them, he will still send out invitations to this party. The servant ended up bringing not the intended distinguished guests, but the types of people shunned, the poor, the sick, the very least of those available. In other words, he's bringing the humbled. And and there are two reasons for why Jesus uses this illustration of the man inviting these people to his home. So the first surface reason is that Jesus came to bring everyone to the table. Everyone. Not just the chosen people. Not just the Christians on this earth. The power of life and the message of Christ isn't that redemption through him is possible at all. It's that redemption is possible for anybody. That was Jesus' message. And anybody on this planet can be redeemed through him. That's beautiful. There are no reserved seats at the table in the kingdom of heaven. None. Anyone. And what that means is that heaven isn't going to look the way we expect it to. It's not going to have the people in it that we expect. It's not going to be a familiar place necessarily to us. It's not even going to be comfortable in in ways. Um, And hold on to that thought for a second. Because the third point here is that those who are considered unworthy are invited to the table. And this is hard to come up with. Because we've already talked about this a little. When he says the humble shall be exalted, he means it. Jesus says the man specifically asked for the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. Christ is telling us that God's grace is extended always and forever. And most importantly, all of those who accept that grace become a part of the kingdom. Circumstances from which you come aren't important. It doesn't matter where you come from. Accepting Christ is what's important. And you have to remember, for this time, it's pretty remarkable, right, for what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you don't have to be born somewhere. You don't have to be of a certain birth, of a certain nobility or title or anything like that in order to get the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter. You can sit at a table with kings, even if you're nothing, because there is inherent worth in redemption in Christ. 
There is inherent worth in a redemption in Christ. If you hear nothing else, hear that. You will sit at a table with kings. And, it, you know, you have to understand at the time, these are people, when we say the sick, the crippled, the lame, these are not people who have a home to go to. These are people who probably have not had a meal indoors in a very long time, let alone slept indoors. And so Jesus is here at a table saying, hey, by the way, all those people that we passed on the way here, yeah, they'll be there. They'll be at the table because I'm inviting them. The last point is Jesus issues an invitation, but he also issues a warning. It's not that complicated. Look at the language he uses at the end. Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. It's a warning. Within the parable, the host is declaring that those who initially RSVP'd but didn't show up, they're no longer welcome at his house. Jesus is telling us that those who initially answer the calling but don't follow through are at risk of missing the party. No, didn't I just say that that invitation's always open? Yeah. But you have to be there to get it. You've got a life. Answer the call. The subtext is clear. It's John 14, 6. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The kingdom is open to those who both listen to God's calling and accept Jesus. That's it. That's how you answer the call. Um, Justin likes to send notes for these things, and he sent me a really long one. He, he keeps giving, these get harder and harder as I move through. I don't know why he thinks I can do this easily. Um, <laughs> um, but he likes big words, and I, uh, I meant to have this on a slide, but I don't have a slide for this. Um, so there's something big here, and, and we've been dancing around it a little bit, or I've, I've been dancing around it a little bit. Um, but there's, a, there's an old, it's a Greek word, and uh, there's a concept here. It's called perichoresis. I think I pronounced it right. And if I didn't, come yell at me later. Now, I did a lot of research on this one particular word because it seems like there are a lot of theologians who really love this concept. Um, and it's something with which I had become a little bit familiar when I uh, was growing up in a Catholic church. Uh, but it wasn't called this, but there was a concept that was utilized to help illustrate uh, what I'm about to tell you. Uh, and it made sense to me once I started reading this. Um, so it's a theological concept that says, and I apologize if I get this wrong, the nature of the relationship between the Holy Trinity, okay? The Father, the, and the Holy Spirit, good, uh, is one of mutual indwelling. Ooh, isn't that good? Mutual indwelling, co-indwelling, mutual indwelling. And, and what that means is that you can't cleave each of these from each other. They are all connected as one. There, there's, there's spiritual tissue between all three of these, of these pieces of what I had read called the Godhead. Um, they are separate entities, but they are one. They are together. And you can't separate them. Nothing can separate them. In this manner, uh, the Father brings glory to the Son. Who brings glory to the Father? The Holy Spirit then brings glory to the Son. And it goes around and around and around. They lift each piece of this, lifts each other up, glorifies one another. 
And it's endlessly cyclical. And this understanding uh, is by virtue of being of another, because they are one, they are separate entities who make up part of the whole, and each other glorifies each other. Now, I'm saying a lot of things. (laughs) That's confusing. I I had to kind of understand it. Uh, Alistair McGrath, that's an Irish-born theologian, he says that it allows the individuality of the persons, in this case in the Trinity, to be maintained while insisting that each person shares in the life of the other two. It's a concept he calls the community of being, where love is the central concept around which all members of that community, in this case the Holy Trinity, glorifies each other, and at the center of this is love. So the other concept here is what you're doing here is you're essentially making room. Even though you are one, you are making room for love between each other in this. the other thing that he had written down without any context at all was dancing to make room. I'm like, what in the world is that? So I had to go dig that up because it's a, it's a very Justin thing to write. Dancing to make room in quotation marks. I wish I had that up to show you. Um, so it was, very, it was very difficult to kind of get through that. Um, but the more you read about it, actually, I, you, I figured it out. And I tried to distill it down the best I could. So here we go. Um, you can't examine the beauty of the Trinity existing uh, and lifting each other up and exalting each other and not realize that this, this is the God that we serve. It, there's joy in that. That's why there's love in the middle of it because the dance to make room with each other is, is, is a dance of joy. There's love and joy and acceptance and understanding. This is not the God we serve of wrath and fury. Uh, uh, this is one that wants us to dance and to celebrate and to glorify each other just as all three of these pieces do. And the more you look at this, we serve a God who wants us to make room to bring others into our orbit, not just to have, you know, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but to have a whole community of believers who, who, who bring others to the table no matter what. Because the central truth to all this is that we are all dancing together. This is what our God means for us. We are a people who make room. This is what he wants from us, to joy, to, to, to dance in joy with him and for him just as we dance within ourselves when we exalt him, when we sing, when we pray, when we love others, when we invite others, when we make others um, part of ourselves in our lives. And that's what it means to adopt, is that we are sharing that dance with everybody because in this concept, this concept, this blueprint for sharing the human relationship between ourselves and, and, and with God and with Christ and with the Holy Spirit is we're all one. It's maybe the most basic concept out of all of this. Is all life is one. And God wants us to live into each other and with each other and for each other, lifting each other up. Not because it makes us feel good, but because it's grace and joy and holy. Jesus makes no exceptions when he makes his guest list. All, all are invited, everyone, full stop. He asks that we say, yes, we'll come, and then we show up. But you know why? It's because you belong. And that's the last point. And it can be really hard to internalize. You belong. The broken. Trauma. You belong. Bless you. It's hard for me 
during our huddle, um, if you aren't part of a huddle, when we get these started up next, you have to do this. Part of our huddle is we took um, a test called the Enneagram test. Um, and it reveals certain parts. It's not really a personality test, but I'm going to simplify it and say it is. It reveals a lot of parts about you. Um, and then we, we talked a lot about how you apply these. Um, so I'm a three. You get assigned a number. I'm a three. Um, one of the characteristics of a three is that a three tends to live out in, um, in the land of people-pleasing. And they are very driven, not because they want people to like them necessarily, but because they set out to do things and they want to do them the absolute best that they can no matter what. Uh, and they crave that. So they're called the achievers. Um, and reading about that, I felt, that, that is me. I, I tend to do things full force. I tend to throw everything in. And I really have a hard time. Um, I'm my worst critic. I tend to get very insecure about, boy, I'm just laying it all out for you, too bad. Um, tend to get very insecure about my um, about stuff. I have a really bad case of imposter syndrome, <laughs> which if you aren't aware of that, you sort of just, you say, oh, well, this happened and I achieved. That couldn't have been by my hand. Surely something else happened or somebody else screwed up and I was the best one that's left. It's hard for you to accept that because um, you never think that you're good enough in a lot of ways. For you know, in certain areas. And as I'm reading this, I think, man, this sounds a lot like me. And while we were in a huddle, um, we were talking about this. And I remember Justin looking at me and he said, maybe what you need is to understand that you're already good enough for God. And that's difficult for somebody like me to hear and internalize. It's hard to internalize that you're already good enough when you are constantly trying to be better. Um, and that's part of this concept. If there's trauma, and I, you know, I, I don't have a lot of trauma in my life, but I know others that do. And so if you're here listening to this and you have a background that is traumatic, and you hear this and say, hear somebody say, yes, you do belong, and you aren't sure, it can be really hard to internalize that. But you belong. You do belong. Because you've been invited just like everybody else. We're also called to invite others. We're called to make room too. The singular beauty in all this is that we are one. We are a family in Christ. We bring glory to his name when we glorify others. That's the other, the reciprocity part. The forgiven forgive, the blessed bless, the glorified glorify. We aren't meant to say, oh, oh no, no, not, not them. They're not Christians. We don't glorify them. Oh, uh, their skin color is different. We don't glorify them. They're LGBTQ. We don't glorify them. They're from a country in shambles and they want out. Well, we don't glorify them. They're having a hard time and I can't handle it. We don't glorify them. No. Jesus already told us we make room because we are we and we are also them. I don't care if that's bad grammar. <laughs> we are we and them and they are us. Doesn't matter. 
We lift up, we forgive, we glorify. And this is difficult. I know this is difficult because reciprocating glory and forgiveness and openness is especially difficult for us who have already been burned by something, who've been burned by the church or a partner or our parents or our friends. But I don't have a good answer for that. I don't know how you get yourself back on your feet except to say this, you belong at that table. You do belong at that table. And God knows your heart and he knows in the midst of whatever brokenness that you've had that you still have the capacity to pour into others because there is inherent worth in being a child of God. You have the capacity to lift up others, even if you need lifted up. That's how it works. That the call to love others aggressively and completely is still part of your way forward because he's shown us this reciprocity is central to the goodness that is God in God's kingdom. And that's what it's about. It's gratitude the feeling of newness and, and, and welcome, the love that comes with the act of choosing to bring somebody to your table. That's why this story is in an adopted series. Because just like the act of adoption is the act of bringing somebody into your home and bringing them to your table physically, it's also a spiritual act. And it's not something that's just for people bringing a human into their home. Adoption is bringing people into your hearts through glorify, glorifying Christ. It's the simple act of surrounding somebody with love. Christ wants us to join him at his table. It's set and it's ready for us. And it's, it's eternity. It's forever. He's extending this invitation to adopt us into his kingdom. And all we have to do is say yes. We belong there. All of us, every single one of us belongs there. We just have to say yes. I want the band to come now. And I want to pray. And I want to pray for a couple of things. Number one, I want to pray. Let's, let's, let's just bow our heads.